He orders two or three entrees at a restaurant because he just can't decide. Luckily, he also loves leftovers. When we were first married, he used to leave the cabinets in the kitchen wide open. That is, until I started coming in and asking, facetiously, of course, have we been robbed? He is always up for a late-night food run or a last-minute weekend getaway. He is the person you come to when you're out of ideas or when you can't see the bright side. He can never sleep if we have an early morning flight, and he gets irritable when he's rushed. He leaves little piles of papelitos, Spanish for little papers, in every room. Once, we tried to organize his papelitos in his office, and when I asked him what the name of a particular folder should be, he said, let's call it Thoughts. He has a file folder called Thoughts. (laughs) His propensity for yes is contagious and delightful. He is the one who thought up this podcast, my entire creative business, really. He is one of the best things that has ever happened to this melancholy, moody musician. And every bright light casts a shadow. For Edwin, that looks like exhaustion, restlessness, anxiety, discontentment, overextension, double booking, judgmentalism of himself mostly, but of others too. I waited outside his work for an hour once because the nighttime janitor had asked him a theological question. He values hospitality and deep connection more than punctuality or organization. And the Enneagram has given us a map of the previously mysterious terrain of our life together. It showed us how to love each other well. And for that, I am grateful. This podcast is for Edwin. It's for anyone who is spontaneous, gregarious, optimistic, or who might want to be. It's for the artists who are wondering how their personality might be affecting their impulse to create. This show is for anyone interested in debunking that tortured artist stereotype, for those who want to believe that the creative life can bring us deep satisfaction, healing, and even joy. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Meredith Height Estevez, and this is Artists for Joy, the podcast. Each week, I will share stories of artists seeking joy. We'll explore how so many travelers along this The Artist Way have left us breadcrumbs, wisdom, and inspiration that can help us stay joyful on the journey. In today's installment of the Creative Archetype series, we dive into Enneagram 7s. Teachers call this type the enthusiast. I interview three very special 7s, including marriage counselor and author Krista Hardin, author Molly Wilcox, and none other than my very favorite seven on the planet, his first time on the podcast, my husband, Edwin. We explore how the Enneagram can shed a special light on all of our relationships, plus what sevens can do to find more focus and the most important fact that we should all know about the sevens in our lives. I'll invite you to try on the seven lens through a creative coaching exercise. You know it's going to be fun this week. And I'll share another heartfelt poem of David Gate that encapsulates the seven just perfectly. But first, here's some more music. Hi, Krista. Hi, Meredith. So excited to talk to you. You too. Thank you for having me on. This is so awesome. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your work with the Enneagram? 
Sure. I started incorporating Enneagram into my couples work. I have a background of couples therapy and couples assessments. And so when a type four friend about seven, eight years ago told me to give a second look to the Enneagram, which I hadn't really batted an eye at it before that, uh, I really listened because she's one of the best therapists I know. And she's like, your work with couples would really be blessed by this. So I was so grateful when she told me, give that look back, not for forward. And it was such a gift to me because at that moment I was able to start right away with a couple in distress. They were a three, nine, we found out and wow, did the work fly. And then simultaneously, I'm a seven and my uh, husband, uh, Wes is a one. And we really had a huge breakthrough as well. So it became part of my, it, it replaced the psychological assessment tools I was patching together and has just grown ever since then to be such a foremost part of my work, whether it be my podcast, Instagram, and everywhere I work with my clients as well. So you're also a writer and this podcast mm-hmm. is, is for creatives of all types and all disciplines. And so I would love to hear about your writing life and how the Enneagram has played into that. Oh, thank you. What a gift to be able to talk about this. I really started writing as a child. My father's uh, late father was a literature teacher. My mother uh, and father wrote a lot of poems, stories, um, so many love letters to one another and just gave us quality classic literature ever since we were little kids. So in school, sometimes I would be noted for writing, but there was always that seven part of me driving and I wouldn't give it much time. So it was a gift to me to have a few teachers down the line say, I'm going to read your your work here in elementary or middle school or college. And I remember being invited to junior great books where we were, you know, the gifted students, uh, which we now know everyone has gifts. Um, but uh, we know sometimes thinking types are rewarded in schools. And and so there were moments where I was given this chance to write, uh, but they were few and far between before uh, this frenzied seven piece of me doing track and tennis and skiing and all those types of things. So really kind of came into writing more as I deepened my faith journey and that faith journey at about 18 allowed me to start taking uh, myself more seriously. And instead of just being the fun, wild girl, I became very studious and I embraced for those who uh, know the Enneagram, they know type seven really does do well when they can go to the five space and focus uh, and even allow themselves some lamenting in the four space. So it was a real gift to be invited into my heart. And of course, that helps me to slow down and do my writing. So I, uh, having a family, I ended up self-publishing uh, in my clinical work about seven books that I just shared with my clients without even trying to publish them because I knew, oh my gosh, we can't do all the worksheets. We need some resourcing and some systems. Um, but when I started to see the need for the Enneagram and my podcast resources started exploding, I felt the scattered seven take over a bit again. And so I realized resourcing into one dynamic book would be a great gift, but now I've done my Enneagram work to a point. And so I also realize I'm going to need some other viewpoints. I'm going to need uh, some assistance with going to the depths. So I'm grateful that I was able to find an agent and a publisher to help me to produce this most latest project. And I think it's probably going to shine a little brighter because there are more voices, if that makes sense. When did you realize you were a seven? Can you share a story 
of when you were really in your number, good or bad? Oh yeah. So I really feel it often, but I really felt it at those parts of my early thirties when, uh, the three decades of life were crashing down on me and I was trying to get my husband through medical school. I was trying to run a clinical practice as the executive director's, uh, glorified clinical supervisor, uh, just doing all these policies and procedures and also seeing teen girls that cut. Then I had two little girls. I'm trying to nurse one. And I kept thinking push, push, push was the way to go. And it was uh, not named seven at the time, but I really met my end because I kept thinking, do more, just do it. Let's be the human science experiment who just keeps pushing. That's what we hear in at least my culture of America. And so I really came to my end when I realized I'm exhausted, I'm burning out. And I started to have weird body sensations that didn't at first appear to be panic attacks, but later I learned were. It's just sort of the seven way of having them where you're like, what's happening to me? I'm feeling random, uh, not bubbly, not tired, fear. Um, And so it really hit me then in a big way to have to stop, to have to really rest. Uh, And my husband being a one is such a doer. It was so crazy for him to be able to walk through this with me because he was very happy with me being in my high seven space of socializing everywhere and doing everything. Uh, And so we both had to really kind of crash together. And that lasted for a few years before we found the Enneagram. And in those years between, say, 32-ish, 33, and about 37, we floated, but really were more treading water because we knew to take date nights and little vacations. And we knew some basic marriage tools because that was my work and he's a good person. Um, But when we found the Enneagram, we finally had that language. And um, he, as a one sort of pushed the computer away when he discovered it, it was very visceral and body. Like if anyone knows body types and he was like, "Ah, I'm a perfectionist. Uh, And, and I was like, I'm just like in the corner shamed over here because I thought I was doing a really good job of being positive and holding it all together. Even though I now knew to rest because I had crashed and burned a bit. Um, I had a whole experience with like learning how to rest. I still had this huge amount of disbelief that I was doing anything wrong otherwise. So that's my moment where seven sort of came down on me. Um, But of course, it's also been a joy to be a seven on a daily basis, as well as a frustration. Hi, I'm Molly and I am an Enneagram seven and I'm a writer. Um, what does it feel like to be a seven? I feel like being a seven feels full of joy. It feels to me like the color yellow. It feels very spontaneous and always active and moving, which is interesting because I'm a full-time freelancer and I work alone. So I get to be my own best friend and kind of create chaos within my schedule every day. I definitely have a high tolerance for chaos. Currently, I mean, my workspace is my home. I'm in my home office, but we're renovating our entire house. And so I have things falling apart. I have holes in my ceilings. I have things constantly all around me that are going like wrong. And people are always coming into my house and like being concerned, like how can you focus here and how can you do this? And I'm like, oh, I didn't, I didn't even notice. (laughs) I don't even react. 
I think my, my number is on full display every night when I cook dinner because I love cooking and I love the idea of cooking dinner. And so I'll start cooking dinner for my husband and I, but I never finish the job. And it's a really funny ongoing joke for us because I'll text him when he should come home and I'll say, this is when dinner is going to be ready. And as soon as he walks in the door, I just abandon it, whatever I'm making. And I just walk away and let him finish it. And I never do it intentionally. I never notice that that's what I'm doing, but I'll just leave things on the stove and just kind of be like, I'm tired. And eventually I'll come back and just sit in the kitchen and be like, so did you, did you finish up? Is it ready now? <laughs> Cause I just leave the project in whatever state it's in. I don't know, completing something fully feels hard and like a little bit scary and it's more fun to start things. So I have a fun time starting and envisioning the process, but then once I'm in something, even if it's a recipe and I know it needs to get finished, I'm like, well, it's pretty much good enough. Like it's in the oven or it's on the stove and now I don't need to worry about these final pieces. And so I just kind of walk away from it and hopefully he stops the house from burning down. <laughs> I like to think of these two stress and health points as more pistons that we're just kind of pinging between those three a lot. And sometimes we're healthy when we go to that two space, even for you, sometimes in the one space, you're probably not always super healthy there. Um, and I certainly know that about my four daughters, she can go to the one space, which is her health space and go very judgmentally. Um, and for myself, I can go as a seven, my, I'm going to be pinging over to five in one and and I can be very orderly and healthy in my boundaries at one and very productive. And in my health space of five, I can be just very hoarding and like, I need to focus all day on say my book or something. Um, and so I think that we have to balance our arrows. So I just recommend to listeners to go to the Enneagram Institute, look at your arrows and try to identify how you show up in those numbers and try to just go to the health of both and in the order that best fits you. Because I think that there'll be different moments of your life when you'll need either strategy Briefly, one more way I like to look at that is if I'm a seven and my stress is one and I sort of know the behind the scenes, this thing called the law of seven in the Enneagram, and that goes a bit deeper, but um, it's kind of my last point. It's not just a stress point. It's almost like that last, the farthest place that I can reach. So what I try to say is don't go there real quick, Krista, because you're going to be like the worst of a type one. You're going to be a perfectionist, perfectionist, critical of self and others. Um but go there, go the distance. And so that you can save enough time in your day for order and margin and getting things together. And it just blesses my whole spirit when I can hit that one space beautifully. Oh, it's like, I feel the fullness of the Enneagram in that moment. Let's bring it back to creativity now, because we have artists from all disciplines, from all life stages. We have, you know, actors, dancers, visual artists, musicians, everybody here. As a four, I, I feel the weight of like, you're the creative one, you know, and mm -hmm. as a, as a coach, I know so many amazingly creative people who are not fours. And mm -hmm. so I really wanted to work on this belief that you don't have to be a four to be creative. <laughs> and so I would, I would love to hear you speak about that and how each number plays a role in the creative process. And we all thrive at different points in that, in that journey. Oh my gosh. Thank you for sharing that. And it's so loving of you as a four, because you're like, this is part of my identity and I don't want to lose it. And 
I think the way four presents creativity is you guys, there's a part of you that knows that we deserve wonder and savoring in life and taking time. And so sometimes I'm a bit wistful for that four space or that one space, um, to be able to just say, I know those are sometimes seen as seen as the most beautiful spaces on the Enneagram because they're able to make things so, um, so precise and so full of depths or order. Um, but I think that you're right that others of us can visit those spaces when we're healthy and that there's other parts of creativity out there besides just order or spatial depths and beauty. There's the creativity of the mind. There's the creativity of business. And I think that whatever industry or part of the arts each person on uh, this podcast is on or each listener, uh, that they can find their own way to creativity and say, oh, like I'm a three and I know how to bring this glorious production together. Or I'm a two and I have a way with seeing uh, the way this room is just most beautifully set up for everyone to feel connected. And so I think that we can really visit all the spaces with a different archetype. I also like that three, six, nine space of, uh, I think they have a groundedness and they're very familiar with what's culturally relevant right now. And they bring that kind of creativity in to say, oh, here's the new phrasing or here's the new styles. And, uh, you know, I'm missing, I'm missing five and eight here. So I'll just throw in briefly that five is very gifted with being able to uh, sit and savor. And then we also know that they can be very artistic in their four wing. And then with eights, I think I was really reflecting on how archetypally they are so good at clarifying and bringing out uh, form because they're so gifted with that. So they often do such beautiful art because they don't feel like they have to put 20 colors in. They might just use black and white and bring something gorgeous out uh, or a very clarified song that they're producing. So uh, the boldness and all of the different gifts of the other types can just be beautiful expressions of creativity. But thank you for doing that as a four for inviting us all in. I appreciate that. Brings us to your creative life. How does that energy that that I don't know what you might call it a set the sevenness of like hungry to begin things and disinterest once you get started like how does that play into your creative work and how do you what to, what tools do you use as a successful writer and editor and ghostwriter like what do you how do you manage that because you complete lots of projects <laughs> I do I think having accountability like external accountability has been huge for me in my creative life because if it were up to me i would just start projects and i would just daydream all day long and i would start a new book i even the other day was like i should start writing another book like totally different from anything that i'm working on just because it came to mind and so i think that's the temptation but having either whether it's like a client or someone who i'm collaborating with some sort of external person who's counting on me to finish that is usually enough kind of almost like peer pressure in a positive way for me to be like, okay, I need to actually follow through with this. Like someone's counting on me and then just becoming more disciplined, I think in myself and being aware, I'm aware of it. Right. So I know that's my greatest weakness. So when I start to be like, oh, this is not fun for me anymore. I want to just abandon it. I'm able to kind of realize what's happening and be like, okay, I need to evaluate what's going on in my mind and go ahead and follow through. Yeah. And do you, do you struggle with in, in stress when you go to one, uh, what does that look like in your life? Yeah. It's kind of like, it's 
It's almost like you turn on a switch where that chaos that was unnoticed before or felt like it was fun, all of a sudden switches to being like, this is actual chaos. Like this is going to bother me and almost puts me in like a state of anxiety. And so I'm the same way, like I'll, I'll kind of do that, but I also tend to freeze. And I think a lot of sevens do that where they just kind of shut down. So I'll be like, oh my gosh, my kitchen doesn't have a ceiling. There's a hole in the wall. My project isn't done. All of this is happening. I'm going to go watch a season of Netflix. That's probably how I should handle this. Yeah. Like avoidance is another another way to be it yeah to be to be stressed yes instead of actually taking action and being like okay i'm gonna just address these things that are causing this chaos to be noticeable to me i'm like oh i'll just close the door and go do something else (laughs) totally are there any numbers where you're like oh man these two numbers should not be married or should not be in a close relationship I love that question. And I get that one a lot because I think that we all want to protect ourselves from like that. And we've all had a bad story with somebody of a type. So the good news is because I've worked with so many hundreds and now thousands of people with this, there are wonderful pairings of every type combo together. There's 45 Uh, combos together and they're all beautiful and they all have their shadows and just one, two, nine couple or one, three, eight couple could be thriving and on point. And the very next one over could be like, we are in the shadows. So I have what's called relationship stages of your Enneagram glow that I've developed just to kind of give us an assessment of like, where are you when couples start working with me to be able to see like, okay, have you hit your shadows? Uh, you're past that shine early shine. And now, uh, we need to help you to not, or to cross through the dark night of the soul, um, before you kind of can find your 2.0 or your afterglow together. And I feel like immersing is the word I like to use for just immersing in the work together, whatever your types to learn that when you're healthy in your type, you're going to bring out a different, beautiful hue with your partner. Um, so each and every four, you know, does a great job in different ways with one through nine. Um, but they all have this bit of a different shadow too. It's very interesting. Yeah, it is. I love I love that metaphor of light because mm-hmm. I definitely feel when I'm around different people, especially those I'm really close to, I feel like they it's it's like they bring out something else in me. Like when 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 I'm around my mom who's a 9, I show up as a different a different version of me. And like so the light she casts on me and the way my light's coming forth, like those mix differently then say like being in the light of a seven is like, it's this beautiful, like glittery glow of like fun and joy. <laughs> and that can be bright, you know, it can be a lot. It so. can be a lot, yes. Yeah. But, well, what else are we missing? What else should, do you want to share? Well, I think that there's a, since we're chatting seven too, I think that there's a, a sense for people to not understand that sevens are part of the anxiety triad. And I really like to bring that out because even sometimes sevens don't know that about themselves. You heard me say, it took me a long time to figure that out. And, um, I think that sometimes sevens can be very selfish and self-focused and, uh, looking for ways to get their needs met. 
And I think that sometimes that's really important for people to know the why behind it, because there's a sense of scarcity, like the five. So think of your seven friends as very five-ish and you'll know that they are working with a certain amount of energy every day, just like we hear about fives and that we're expected, as we talked about earlier, to be very hype. And so we can't do as much um, because of that. And it's like, even if I don't put it out there, people do see that glow. I was at the, um, my daughter and I did pure bar a couple of days ago and we went to the grocery store afterwards briefly. And we walked out my type four daughter and I, and everyone wanted to talk to me, you know, even the person crossing the street outside. And, um, she was like, you're always in your seven with people. And then I just turned to her and I was like, I know, but like, I'm tired. I don't have much more to give now. Like that was costly. And now I need to come down from that. And so now I'm hoarding a bit. And so I think that people need to know that there's an anxiety to please with the seven and to come into that fawning space of, you know, fight you know, we don't want to fight. We we can be aggressive. So we want to walk away from that kind of mean one-ish place. So then we fawn, but either of these states takes an awful lot out of us. So now we're coming back to hoard like energy. And so all that to say, like give your sevens the same, um, grace that you give yourself in terms of like what we talked about with that attribution error. I don't think they're a villainous type just because they can be self-focused. I think they're trying to figure it out just like the rest of us. Tell us lastly, Krista, where we can hire you to fix our marriage, um, (laughs) where we can find your book and how else we can support you. Oh, I'm so grateful for this opportunity, Meredith. You're such a thoughtful listener and just, I'm so grateful for this opportunity. All of my resources are at enneagramandmarriage.com. You can also visit my kristaharden.com site for my book information as well, but podcast book, all of it's at Enneagram and Marriage or kristaharden.com. Great. We'll put it in the show notes as well. So we can, you're a delightful follow on Instagram. So um, yeah. Anything else you want to add? Uh, you're a delightful follow on Instagram too. When I see your posts pop up, I'm so encouraged and I'm just like, oh, she is sharing about creativity and I'm so grateful because I haven't seen this much in the Enneagram world. So thank you for uh, creating something for us to be encouraged by as artists. It's just such a beautiful gift that you're giving us all. Well, you're so welcome. Thanks for being part of it. There we go. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear you. (laughs) Wait a minute, but it's very turned down. It's very low. (laughs) Hey, put in the chat. What do I have to do? What's my script? Your script. There's there's no script. Did you not hear from my publicist about about what I'm used to? Like like room temperature water, but a cold cup. And... (laughs) a microphone and I, I don't like pressing any buttons on any piece of technology. I just like it done, ready to go. <laughs> Action, cut. So, uh, <laughs> Does this work? Say your name and your Enneagram number and then tell us about your creative life. My name is Edwin Rolando Esteves, if you've ever spoken or taken Spanish. Um, but you can also say Edwin Estevez is what I usually go by. And I have been accused uh, of being a seven 
And I am, what do you mean a creative medium? What, how do you use your creativity? What's your creative life like? I think I do it in a lot of ways. I think I do it as a dad. I do it as a husband. I do it as a pastor at Kirk in the Hills. I do it as a musician, um, uh, percussionist. I do it as I write a lot for things at the Kirk, like for sermons and Bible studies and treatises, let's call them, you know, devotionals, you know, just different things I've got to write. And I'm also in a doctoral program. It's a doctorate in ministry. It's a practical degree. And I'm using a lot of creativity for that, getting back into the academic groove, um, but also trying to be creative about how I frame that. So I think it's, it's displayed in different ways. Why does it feel like you're being accused of being a seven? Like, tell me about your relationship to the Enneagram. <laughs> well, I mean, I just, I haven't done enough reading to really know. And something you know about me, but others might not know is I really need to like dwell on things and process them and figure them out and research and go down rabbit holes. And I mean, I'm being a bit facetious when I say I'm accused. It's like, I've taken a test. I forgot what it said. And I think I was told I was a seven and I went to a workshop and a retreat and I tried to read a little bit of a book and I stopped. And, and then you, my wonderful, amazing wife told me I was a seven. Okay, I, think, I think it's good that you share that because I bet there are people, well, we haven't talked in the series at all about resistance to the Enneagram or ways that the Enneagram can be used to objectify people maybe, or simplify people's experience. And so we don't want that. And you're not supposed to type other people. And yet everybody does that all the time. Um, so it's on the one hand, it's liberating and I get that. And on the other hand, there's so much more to a person than where you're from and what, what your calling is and, um, you know, what, you know, who you love and, you know what I mean? Like being a man or, you know, there's just so much more to a person than that. So um, that's sort of what I want to lift up and why I, I kind of um, just, I'm just suspicious. Let's call it, you know, in, the, in my seminary training, it's like the hermeneutics of suspicion. You know, I'm just from the outset going, okay, what's this about? Where is this coming from? Right. So I'm asking questions. So I anyway, think, that was a long-winded small point I was making. <laughs> well, I think, no, I think that's good because the seven archetype that we're talking about in this episode, I think that is a fairly common experience for many people who might call themselves seven is suspicion and the ability, the gift to hold the yes and to see the complexities in things. And for for other types who might need more certitude or who might find more safety in definitions and specific parameters, the seven is really about saying yes to the yes and. But I would just love to hear you tell me a little bit about what it's like to be you. Yes, and. <laughs> Do -do -do. Yeah, I love, <laughs> um, I remember as a kid, one of the stories I had, I have, and I think I have shared this with you, is like I had this show I created called The Water Show. And it was be it was like whenever I took a shower, that's like when the program was on. So it wasn't always quite the same bat time and the same bat channel, but you know, I would like, all right, welcome to the water show. And I was the host of the water show, but I was also an actor in the skits of the water show. 
And then the water show, believe it or not, became so successful at age seven, eight, nine, 10, and 11 that I, there were water show movies. There were movies that came out of the water show. I became Waterman, who was a hero, an action hero who used water to help people in different ways. So I could make it rain. I could, I could make rivers part like Moses. I could, you know, do all these different things. So, um, and uh, and then we started coming out with action figures and there were books and I was the creative director managing all this. Right. I was the I was the cinematographer and the director and the writer and the all these different things. Right. And I think, you know, if you look at that, no one taught me that I didn't know anybody like that. I didn't know anything like that. I just uh, on the one hand, you could say it makes sense because that's all, all I knew was my experience in in the in that world. Nobody in my family was in the creative industry, say, like professionally. Um, but I, I wanted to be the writer and the director and the cinematographer and the producer and the, the host. I wanted to be all those things. There wasn't one thing I wanted to just pick and like, nope, I'm just the actor or nope, I'm just the director. And I think I just, that tells you a lot of, I've just had this incredible curiosity about the world. I love learning about the world. I love learning about people. I'm just fascinated by um, you know, just, just like books, like, you know, I know on the one hand, we've got the critique of, oh my gosh, in college or seminary, I had to read all these dead white men. And, but for me, I look at it as like, wow, I get to read the words of dead people that I never would have met that I will never meet, but I get to have conversations with them. And I look with sadness. I actually really did have to deal with this for a time because I was just going to book fairs and going to little bookshops and just buying books and buying books and buying books. And I was collecting books. I had a, a library I was collecting and it just became unmanageable, you know, and I, that seems like so obvious, but it's like such a deep sadness that I'm, there's a part of the world I will not know because I didn't read this book. Um, and I was like that with travel too. I used to travel a ton. I loved traveling. You know, I don't know how many countries I've been to now, but like, I don't know, let's say 18, 20 countries. Can you share a story of when you were really in your number, when your number was on full display, good or bad? It's like, okay, pick one. But like, let's pick one in seminary. It was like, hey, uh, it's late at night. Uh, tomorrow we have our, um, is it the baccalaureate service? Like right before the commencement. So I have, we had the baccalaureate service and this is at Princeton Theological Seminary. And so, and uh, we know that that's the next day, but we're like, well, what do we do today? We don't have classes. We don't have anything to do. It's kind of a open day. Um, and it's late at night. And my friend Matthias says, let's go to New York. And I'm like, okay. Like, I mean, there's no, in, I'm not like, well, it's late and bedtime. I'm just like, yeah, okay. I mean, he could have said anywhere and I would have been like, sure, let's go. Um, and so we go to New York. So we don't get back until seven in the morning. And at that point, it's like we missed a train and blah, blah, blah. And like then there there's the baccalaureates happening later that afternoon. I still have to go buy a suit. Nothing's opened. I had to buy shoes. It turns out I needed a tie. So there's like all these things I haven't slept. Um, and that I just have so many of those stories. Right. And it's and they're fun. Like they're really it's fun. And that's the beautiful part of it. The downside of it is that like, yeah, that can't be healthy. Like if, if, you know, if, if I had one of those stories, if I had four of those stories, if they all occurred during college, you'd be like, yeah, that's fine. Except that they didn't. They occurred all my life. Uh, yeah, it's just, I'm always looking for an adventure. I think in the past, that adventure was an adventure to find myself. 
It was an adventure to answer certain questions about life and meaning and purpose and God and and uh, existence and love and heartbreak and evil and all the different and suffering and all the different things. Um, and then there was a point in which I thought all these things could give me those answers. And uh, and they didn't. They were not they were unable to give me the answers. Um, and I realized that in a way I was playing out my questions on these adventures, right? Like these, these adventures were like books that could have interesting insights, but they might not be able to answer the question or they might not answer the question adequately or meaningfully, et cetera. Maybe they sometimes were trying to answer that question, you know, but I needed to, I needed to play a more active role. And that was a big change in my life. Like that moment where I, and, and it affected all the things I just mentioned, because I don't, for instance, I don't travel as much. Meredith knows this about me. I'm okay if I never travel again to any other country in the world. I've had this new found like burden, like in a, in a good way, like a good burden, like a task, you know, like Frodo's ring that he has to carry, which is like, get to know your area, get to know your neighborhood, get to know the people that are in your life whether that's a challenge, whether that's a plus, whatever that is, it's like, get to know them, you know, be present to that. And it's hard for me to be present. You know, that's the challenge. It's hard. The everyday ordinary task for me is very difficult. And I don't know if that's a seven thing, as you say, you're, you're, you're nodding your head hard. So I'm guessing it is. So the premise behind this series is that we need all nine energies from the different Enneagram types to complete, to take a creative project from idea to sellable product or shareable product. Where in the creative process does, does a seven thrive or do you specifically thrive? Where do you feel most at home in, the, in, create, in creativity? Ooh, I definitely feel most at home in the beginning. I think I feel like in that dreaming stage, in the ideation process, that's when I'm like, that lights my heart on fire. Like I love being the idea person. I love walking into the room and seeing all the possibilities. And for me, I think that's a strength that sevens bring because some numbers might see certain obstacles, but sevens will be like, what are you talking about? Like there's nothing in the way from us possibly doing this. Like everything is possible. And so, um, yeah, I think I feel the most at home being in that stage of the creative process where I'm able to say, this is absolutely possible. This is the dream. This is the big idea and kind of get to like launch things. And I love those stages of like the humble beginnings. I love like thinking of the big like origin stories of like things starting like that's the best for me. Like it, like to describe it using a movie. If you've ever seen Life Is Beautiful, with uh, what is it, Roberto Benigni and uh, La Vita Bella, um, you know, it's a World War II movie, beautiful movie, heartbreaking movie. But the whole thing is how he makes he makes a game out of the tragic reality of the of World War II, and he does that so his son, you know, isn't traumatized by everything that happens. And some people, you know, obviously it won awards. It was beautiful. It was very moving. And then, if you, of course, you always have the critic uh, who, you know, is cynical and says, well, all you did was hide him from the reality, harshness of the evil of Nazism and, and fascism and Mussolini and the world, right? Um, but I saw it as like, oh my gosh, 
if there is a task I feel that I've been called to, it's that task. It's to say the world is incredibly tragic. So let's laugh. Let's have joy. Let's cultivate joy. Let's help people feel welcome and loved. Let's do that to the best of our abilities, you know, and um, like if I could find a role model, that would be it. It's the person who's like, you know what? Things are not going well. Here's a fun story I want to share. Here's a fun game we can play. Here's music we can listen to. So Leonard Bernstein, uh, his response to Kennedy's assassination. Is it Bernstein? Are you saying it's Bernstein? Either way. No, I was going to oh. say this will, be, this will be our response to violence is to yeah. make music more beautifully than ever before. Yes, exactly. So that's my thing. My thing is, and this is something you've told me seven is, it's reframing. I grew up in an alcoholic household. Uh, you know, there was, and, and what's incredible about that is I feel like I had such an amazing childhood. And yet when I look back at it, I go, oh, wow, that, you know, this was a, uh, this is something a counselor would have been like, whoa, there's a lot of trauma going on here. Um, and so for me, it's the gift of, let's say, you know, the, the, I guess the ways I've interacted with the world is that I have suffered a lot. And that it's in and of itself is hard to say, because I'm like, well, I've suffered. I mean, there are a ton of people I know have suffered way more than I have. So in, in many ways, I feel blessed. I feel like I've had a charmed life. And yet there is the reality, the tragedy of you know, growing up in, in an immigrant family and all the challenges of an alcoholic household and everything that comes out of that and dealing with that. There's a great book for adult child of alcoholics. I forget who wrote it, but it's a wonderful book for any of you who grew up in an alcoholic household. Um, but I look at that and there's just this gift of, of being able to reframe that and say, like, okay, so what will I do in the face of such tragedy? What will I do in the face of such suffering? It's like, I will play music more beautifully than ever before. I will laugh harder. I will, and you know, even just saying that, I'm like swelling up and, and I'm like about to cry in this Zoom, this little Zoom chat, you know, because that moves me. There's a core that just moves me to the core of who I am. What I wish other people knew about sevens is just that we have a lot more depth than it might seem. I think a lot of people assume that because we have this fun, crazy persona, you know, we're all energy all the time. We have a bunch of hobbies or fun to talk to or storytellers and all those things that it seems a little bit surface level sometimes, but I think Sometimes I'm like, I wish someone could just spend a day in my brain and see what it's like to be balancing this relationship with the world where everything is fun and exciting, but you also are dealing with like a lot of fear and you're really trying to pursue freedom and you're, yeah, you're scared of not having that. Um, so yeah, I wish people knew that we have a lot more depth than meets the eye. Um, I love the word mirth. That's someone that's a that's a word I I'm sure I probably had heard of before, but I discovered again through G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote this book called uh, Orthodoxy, I think is the name of the book. Um, he talks about mirth and and just uh, in fact, he's describing Jesus and he's saying, you know, you kind of see the full human expression of Jesus in the Gospels. But but maybe something Jesus held back on. And he's like, and I say this re very reverently and he's building and building and building. And at the very end of the chapter, you're like, oh my gosh, what is he going to say? And he's like, I think, I think Jesus was hiding his mirth 
because he thought we would be overwhelmed by it. Like, you know, and, and just to pause in that moment, you know, whatever listeners belief or association with or knowledge of the, the person of Jesus and everything, just putting that to the side, if you could just conceptually think of this sense of the, of divine laughter, like, what does that mean? Like if, if it is the case that there is some being, some personality, some, some, so not just a force. So a force with a personality out there somehow that has orchestrated the universe, right? And I'm using that word intentionally, orchestrated, right? Orchestral conductor has conducted the symphony of the stars, okay? If that is the case, imagine that that being laughing, you know, that being laughing in, in, you know, rapturous joy, like what in the, what would that be like? So much to respond to there. <laughs> yeah. I went on a monologue. Sorry. This is, this is kind of the, the crux of our marriage, isn't it? Um, I should have been taking notes while you were talking, but no, I love that. And I am glad you brought up joy and i think there's something to say about our our unique pairing of of archetypes because as a four you know i'm i'm really comfortable with melancholy and yet the greatest gift i feel like you've given me in our life together is a call to joy and this podcast my work which has the word joy in the title <laughs> is really was inspired by you and your your calling me out of the the dark melancholy place artists often live into a, a fuller life that celebrates laughter and joy. And so I wish you would give right now the listeners a little taste of that, the creative joy that you find, like I, I how you're able to use your gifts in your personality to lead people towards creative joy. When for on my own faith journey, when I realize this infinite eternal being that I've been talking about, who in my life I, I express as God, um, you know, in the person of Jesus Christ through, through my Christian faith, when I realize the love God has for me is just as infinite and eternal and therefore non-negotiable, it's not on the table, it's never up for discussion, it is, it, it is as true as I am alive, I am loved. Those two things are as true that one equals one, right, Car the law of correspondence. So when I realize that, it's like, oh, I don't have to create my own value. It doesn't have to be about me. It's not about the ego. It's about how do I help the world uh, discover its own beauty, right? How do I help it like, hey, just dust off the book a little bit and you'll see this beautiful book. Hey, just, just take the cloth off of the canvas and you'll see how beautiful this painting is. Just, you know what I mean? Like, like, like let's pick up the cello again and let's have it played instead of it just sitting there. And in that moment, when maybe I had a little bit of influence, that's where my joy is. I had a little bit of influence, but the output, the final idea, the final initiative wasn't even mine. That's my favorite moment because I've now just gotten someone who's almost opposite of me to see something differently. And together we created something new that maybe I couldn't even have imagined. As imaginative as I am, I could have imagined 17 things, but they imagined the 18th thing. That, oh my gosh, I love that moment. Honestly, I think that's what happened with you and me. 
and this podcast and this book that you're writing and your whole ministry for artists. I, you were in a tough season in your life and you can tell your story in your own way. But the way I experienced it was you were having a lot of existential questions. There were a lot of challenges coming your way and all you could see were, was the no, right? All you could see was the, this isn't going to work and all the ways that I'm sad and you know that I don't know how my life is going to be now and what's it going to look like and all these different things. And I remember just giving you ideas. I could not have predicted how alive you were going to become. You know, I could see the possibilities. I could see, oh yeah, there could be a podcast and there could be a book and you could go on a speaking circuit and I could keep doing that, right? Like I could, and we do that together. That's one of the things we also bond over. We brainstorm a lot. We brainstorm my sermons. We brainstorm your book. We brainstorm your podcast. So like, that's the way we're creative together. But I think like at the end of the day, the most beautiful part of this is you were influenced by an idea I had, but you made it your own, you know? And that's the most beautiful thing, you know? It's not like, oh yeah, you see, my idea came to fruition. It was like, no, my idea influenced an idea that maybe I didn't even see. And like, you've had your own creative journey on that. That's that's like my favorite thing in the world. Like, that's just amazing. <laughs> um, I Yeah, I'm so grateful for that. I don't know where I'd be without it. And the Enneagram for me in our marriage and our relationship has really been helpful in almost taking myself out of it, like seeing you for who you are and the gifts that you bring me and the ways, you know, in, in marriage counseling, how we've learned, like both, both people in the marriage have something to teach each other. And that's what you've taught me is to, uh, to find joy and to say yes, even when it's much easier to stay in the no and to stay in the sadness and the the hard stuff. So that's the gift of a seven. And I'm so grateful for it. <laughs> I'm grateful for you. I'm tell us, tell us <laughs> what um what you wish other numbers, other other archetypes knew about yours. Do not look at the enthusiast. As like, oh my gosh, I wish I was the enthusiast. Oh, the enthusiast has all this much fun and they're amazing and they're great. Um, uh, as much as like, well, thank you very much, you know, but um, don't just go, oh my gosh, I wish I was that. Neither write it off as, oh my gosh, they're just the ones that have all the fun. We, we're the ones who have to lead and we're the ones that have to be careful about the accounts and make sure structures are up and running and we're the ones that, you know, have to deal with the suffering of the world. It's like, no, they each bring a gift. Um, each brings a gift. And so in, the, in, in as much as we tell our stories, as I've tried to do in long-winded ways, sorry, um, as, as, in as much as we're able to share those stories and then actually hear them, uh, it's like just share stories, hear stories, and in so doing, love the person, you know? Don't try to figure it out, which is a temptation of mine because I try to figure it all out. So, um, so I guess that's a little bit of what uh, I hope that we all learn. I love you. I love you. <laughs> to all my sevens out there, thank you for the joy you bring to our lives. Thank you for calling us out of the dark night of the soul and into a different kind of light. Yes, and we love you for more than that. We see your depth and your mirth. We know that you are more than your hype and energy and fun-loving self. We give you permission to stay quiet, to rest, 
to stay home (laughs) instead of following the FOMO to New York City on a school night. We give you permission to cry, to feel pain. Close the kitchen cabinet after you get a glass if you can, please, and maybe turn off the stove before you abandon dinner. Breathe in and breathe out when the anxiety hits. You are loved for more than your ability to bring joy to our lives. Invest in your own dreams, even when the world uses you for your ideas and your ability to cast vision. Give yourself the gift of time and space to do the hard work of getting organized and taking stock. This is a part of dreaming, too. Creativity takes space. You deserve the hard work of following your dreams, of seeing them come to fruition. If you'd like to try to channel your inner Enneagram 7 today, and let's be real, who doesn't? I have a creative coaching invitation for you that I've left in the show notes again this week. Find time and space for a good old-fashioned yes and brainstorm. Leave behind the no's when they pop up. Maybe there isn't enough money or time or energy or creativity. Put it aside and just let yourself dream because believing anything is possible, even for a moment, can unlock creative joy when you least expect it. This invitation, as well as the links we've mentioned in today's show, are all in the show notes, as well as a way for you to get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you about how the episode lands, if you're a seven or if you love one. (laughs) You can write to us via email or leave us a comment on the post for this episode on Instagram at Artists for Joy. Now for today's coda, a poem by David Gate, entitled Seven. Blessed are the eager-hearted who greet each moment as a new gift, unwrapping the curiosity with contagious joy, sharing unaware the incessant spirit of life hidden in us all that awakens when they are near. That's it for today's episode of Artists for Joy. It was Edwin's idea, but it was written and produced by me, Meredith Height Estevez. Artist for Joy is a woman-led small business where I craft workshops, talks, podcasts, and performances that help people harness the power of creative expression to make their lives better. To learn more and support the work of Artists for Joy, visit artistsforjoy.org or click the link in the show notes to buy me a coffee. Today's music featured Bishar Haroni playing Chopin and Mozart. Mozart, by the way, is often named as an Enneagram 7 as well as Hawkins playing the flower duet from Lakme, Dan Zaitun with an original, plus the drum stylings of Reverend Edwin Estevez and his band Mylan and the Sour Goat. I would venture to guess that many an Enneagram 7 have been a drummer in a band. <laughs> Our theme song is by my favorite Enneagram 3, Angela Sheik. In the podcast today, you heard the voices of Krista Harden, Molly Wilcox, and Edwin Estevez. Krista's book, Enneagram and Marriage, comes out very soon, so click the link in the show notes to check it out. Her podcast, Enneagram and Marriage, is another amazing resource for every type. Molly Wilcox is the author of How Much More and writes a beautiful Substack newsletter called Threshold. Catch Edwin on Sundays here in Metro Detroit, Michigan at Kirk in the Hills Presbyterian Church. David Gate, whose work I read today, sells his Enneagram poems on postcards. So visit davidgatepoet.com. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you are new around here, we are almost ready to wrap up our summer Enneagram series. We got two more episodes. Did you know that I created a playlist on Spotify of all the episodes in one place? If you want to go back and hear them again or share them with a friend who might be wondering about their Enneagram type or how it intersects with their creative life. And remember, if you are looking for creative encouragement, scroll back in the feed and check out one of our over 100 episodes of well-being support and tips for bouncing back from rejection, overcoming imposter syndrome, and more. We always appreciate a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or a follow or subscribe wherever you listen. And when you share the show with a creative friend who needs it, it helps others find us. Thank you so much in advance for doing so. Lastly, did you know that you can meet many of the folks we have featured in this podcast series live and in person? Okay on Zoom, uh, Tuesday, August 29th, as we are celebrating all we have learned in this series, getting to spend time with other artists to discuss creativity and the Enneagram. And so learn more and register today at artistsforjoy.org. That link is in the show notes too. Until then, friends, take good care. Today's Sounds of Joy speaks for itself, a taste of what it is like at our house living with an Enneagram 7. Enjoy little accents for me for the sounds of joy <laughs> a couple accents i don't know yeah. i feel i feel i'm good at accents once i've either been in that country or uh you know i've watched a movie but here here are couples so i have a brother-in-law who is cuban here when i hear him speak he's like and then you're just like okay i i can sometimes understand it you know it's just this deep, like, you know, this grovel, grovely voice. You're in Scotland and you're, you're going to Edinburgh and you're, you're traveling the roads and you see all these, the skies and landscapes just rising in front of you, you know, and it's like, that's that's what I hear there. Uh, oh, bonsoir, monsieur. And it's like, um, uh, uh, je m'appelle Edwin, you know, and they're like, oh, yours is so, oh, vous, uh, parlez l'anglais. Oh, you speak the English. You speak the English, monsieur. And it's like, oh, yeah, yes, you know, so I hear that. I ask, egg. Y'all want some sauce? You know, um, that's actually, well, that was a different part of South Carolina. That wasn't your family. But, you know, they're like, Mary's, Mary's repertoire. Mary's repertoire on the oboe is up there, just. Up there on that stage playing up there that on horn. that stage just playing that horn, you know. <laughs> um, all righty. Only 25 minutes late to my next call. Perfect. Thank you. I love you. Bye-bye. Love you. Bye-bye now.